I did ask somebody yesterday if they were if they were bored with Luke, and the response was that they were enjoying the details. So I think it's part of just maturity as a church, maturity as as a believer that that we go deep in the Word and that we go deep in who Jesus is, and that we're we're not satisfied with skimming over the surface, but we really want to dig in. And today we're we're going to Luke chapter seventeen. And we're going to just cover the one story, the one little account that you will be really familiar with in, in Luke 17. It's the, it's the story of the ten lepers, um, which is a, a common one and, and one that those of you that have been around church and been around Sunday school have no doubt heard before. Let me read some, some verses from the start from... from Verse 11, I'll just read four or five verses to give us a a springboard to go from. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, Have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. Luke's account of of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem started way back in 951 where we read about him realizing the time is approaching for him to be taken up to heaven. And Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. That's 951. That's where the journey started. Luke's gospel is famous for this long, long journey to Jerusalem. And he won't get there until 1941. He approaches Jerusalem and he weeps over the city at the end of chapter 19. He doesn't travel in a straight line. If you look at it on a map, he's all over the place. He's, you know, going back and forwards. So he's on a journey that is taking him to Jerusalem. But on the way there, it's not a straight line. He goes different places. He touches people's lives. He teaches people. And all the while, he is plagued and followed and scrutinized and criticized and opposed by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And in this little account today. He is on the border of Galilee and Samaria and his attention is drawn to these 10 men as he approaches a village. They are on the outskirts of the village and they call to him. And the reason that they're standing at a distance is because they are lepers. And Bible scholars now would say that the term leprosy covers a whole range of different skin diseases that people would have had that were contagious. And leprosy was basically a slow death sentence. People who had this had to withdraw from their communities. So we imagine people we know and love who are unwell, and that's a time that we particularly gather around them, and that we don't want them to be on their own, and the thought of a loved one 
in, in hospital on their own for a period of time. You don't like that. So uh, in your family, you, you take turns, you do shifts, you go and sit at a bedside and you make sure that that person is, is not alone as, as far as, as you possibly can. But for leprosy, you had to withdraw from that. There was no contact with your family. You didn't have people around you. You were in a permanent quarantine outside the city walls or the the confines of the village. No community, no family. You had to declare yourself to be unclean so that nobody would accidentally come in contact with you. You would never hold your spouse again. You would never hold your children again. You would never have a job again. There were no government agencies to provide food or health care. And the only community these people had was other outcasts just like them. So you've got this little band of 10 lepers who have formed their own little group. Back in, in the Old Testament in, I can't remember if it's 2 Kings or 2 Chronicles. I think it's 2 Kings. There's, there's a group of four lepers uh, who, who live together and then go on a bit of a mission but they, they would have lived in these small communities and they've heard about Jesus. First thing, you know, just as I've prayerfully pondered this chapter in verses 12 and 13, they call out to Jesus. They have heard about him from somewhere. I'm going to speculate later where they have heard about him from, but they have heard about Jesus and they assume that Jesus is going to be exactly like they've been told. They have been told that he is compassionate. They have been told that he heals the sick. They have been told that he is overflowing with love. They have probably been told that he has healed other lepers. And they, ex- they, they have an expectation of Jesus. And based on that expectation, they cry out to him. And they find that he is exactly like he's been described. And I thought about the church And I wonder, do people sometimes have an expectation of what the church will be like? And do they find that to be the case whenever they come into the the community of the church? Because we and and all churches, we want to be a community centered on Jesus, becoming more like him. We want to be a family that loves and looks out for one another. We want to be a strong, safe place. Is that what people find? Is that, you know, that's what they've been told the church is. But when they come, is that what they find? And it can be a really damaging experience for people who long for that strong, loving community and come into the church and find instability and lack of trust within the, the community of the church. In my, I have a wee journal that I bring to the prayer meeting. Um, it says savage on the front of it. Somebody bought it for me and I read nothing into that at all. But I have this, this, prayer, this journal and every Tuesday night I will record the, the prayer requests that, that people fire in and I always leave a chunk of space at the bottom of the page because there's always something that happens in the prayer meeting. There's always somebody will, will share a scripture or somebody will share just a, a prophetic picture that's coming into their mind or just as I'm praying myself I'll find a scripture comes to mind and I I write it down and this year the first prayer meeting in in the year the verse that came to my mind was 1 Peter 4 8 and I wrote it down in the journal above all love each other deeply and if that is is a priority within the church then the community will be that strong, safe place. And as soon as people come over the door, they'll be affected by it. 
love each other deeply. Jesus said that people would know that we are his disciples if we love one another. So people are expecting the church to be a place of unconditional love and acceptance. And I hope that's what they find and that the church is not found wanting. This is where we want to be reading. You know, if you're, if you're doing a reading plan that you want to... I always rant on about getting the Gospels into your reading plan every day, but also get some of the epistles in every day because they are real practical, big chunks of those about how to live and how to love one another and how to encourage one another and support one another so that we create a place that when people hear about it and come in, they're not disappointed. These guys have heard about Jesus and they are not disappointed when they cry out to him. They know that they need mercy. Because leprosy was just a living nightmare. And they were reminded every moment of every day that they needed mercy. And it can be harder for us to cry out for mercy. Because the leprosy that we have is in our hearts. Sin is an internal thing. It is something that, that gets into us, that causes shame. And it can be harder for us sometimes to identify it. And it can be hard in our pride to cry out for mercy. These guys had the humility to cry out for mercy and they knew who to cry to. Someone has told them about Jesus. Someone. The Ten of them live outside the city. Nobody goes near them, but somebody has, has been bold enough to, to go close enough to them and to, to shout over the wall or to get a message to them about this Jesus who can change their lives and wonder who that might have been. And it says in verse 14, when he saw them, I love that, he saw them. There are experiences in life that, that you will go through and that I will go through that can make us feel very isolated. These guys were isolated from community and sin can isolate us and the shame of it can isolate us and cause us to want to withdraw from people. But just the challenges and the difficulties of life sometimes isolate us. Sometimes we're going through things and the nature of what we're going through is we don't want to talk about it with a whole lot of people. We maybe only entrust it to one or two. We're not sinning by doing that. It's just something that's intensely private or intensely difficult or for whatever reason, we don't want to share it widely. And the outcome of that is that we end up to we feel a bit isolated in what we're going through because we're on a painful journey but we're, we're separated from community in that journey. And sometimes if, if you're like that, if you're going through something in particular that you just don't want to give the raw details of it to, to very many people and you feel that you're a bit alone in it, I want you to see those three words. He saw them. He saw them. The others living in the town, if, if these lepers were the sort of guys, if you saw them, you quickly pretended that you hadn't seen them. Okay, you sort of turned your gaze, looked down, checked your phone, went, you know, suddenly remembered something that you had to go back and get. You, you saw them and then you, you turned your gaze away. But Jesus saw them in their isolation and in their aloneness and in their separation. He saw them. And when it seems that nobody sees what we're going through because the nature of it has caused us to not want to share it with many people, Jesus sees. He sees. And 
in his saying of them, this is where I think I, I certainly benefit from going through the gospel and, and seeing the big picture. The question that, that came to mind for me is, is Jesus tired? Because prior to this in, in the gospel, Jesus has, as you know, he's been criticized. The Pharisees have been on his case all the time. The entire contents of Luke chapter 15, the parable of the, the lost sheep and the lost coin and the, the lost son, all of that was spoken in response to the Pharisees and the way that they were plaguing him and criticizing him. And I wonder, is Jesus tired? Is he tired? Does he have what some people would call compassion fatigue? where you have poured out and you've poured out and you've poured out and yet you've been criticized and you've been opposed and you've been disappointed and there's been conflict and there's been opposition and you're disillusioned. And I, and I sort of, I tried to put myself in Jesus' sandals here at this moment where he, he now for about eight chapters in, in our Bibles has been tormented by these critics trying to catch him out, trying to trip him up, trying to wear him down. And, and I, I sort of thought, if, it, if I was Jesus at that point, and I'm, I'm getting towards the last part of my journey to Jerusalem, and I hear these people crying out for help, I would probably just say, do you know what? I'm fed up with people right now. I've had enough of people. I'm worn down, and I'm tired, and I'm weary, and I just want to ignore that and, and keep on going. Can grace, this is Daryl Bach asks this question, can grace be manifested in the midst of opposition? Do you get what I'm saying? When you're just tired, tired, and Jesus is bound to be worn out for the level of criticism that he faced was way above anything we ever face. And he had every reason that he could have just ignored these guys and said, I can't deal with people today. <laughs> but he did. After all the conflict and all the opposition, does he still have the heart and the compassion and the desire to show mercy? Yes, he does. After all the criticism, is he tired? Is he running out of love for people? No, he is not. Somehow he still has a well. He still has a resource that he can draw from even when everything around him is opposed to him. And that is his relationship with his father. And you, you get that in all of the gospels, just these little notes where Jesus withdraws, where he goes and prays all night long, where he, he takes his disciples to a quiet place. He, go, he gets up early in the morning. One of my favorite verses in Mark 1.35 Early in the morning, a great while before day, Jesus got up and he went off by himself to a solitary place. And that's why whenever he heard the cry of these 10 men, even in his weariness and in his disillusionment, I'm sure by the way he was being treated by the religious leaders, he still had something to draw from. He still had something to bring to them. And he has bigger concerns. I, lo I love this as well. When he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. And you think that's a bit odd, surely, because all they want is just to be healed and go home. Just go about their business. Why does Jesus tell them to go and show themselves to the priests? 
Well, if you're like me and you read through the Bible once a year, there is that joyous day when you get to Leviticus 13 and 14. Oh, blessed day. And you get to read two massive chapters about skin diseases and spots and hairs and all sorts of stuff. And it's hard graft getting through it. But back in those chapters, you find that whenever somebody has one of these contagious skin diseases, this leprosy, whenever, if they are healed of it, they have to go to the priest. And what the priest does is he verifies their healing so that they can be restored back into community. Jesus is not simply concerned that a leper or 10 of them get healed. He wants them restored into community, restored back into family. They have lost family and they have lost community and they've lost their place in society because of their illness. And if they just got healed, that is not enough. That is not enough because the, the, the pain in their lives comes from this separation. So Jesus is, is certain that he is going to get them back into society. And only the priest can verify that. Only the priest can allow them to do that. And that's why he sends them to the priest. We're, we've got in the church, we've got to be much more interested in, in the whole person than just getting them to say a sinner's prayer. Yeah. Or getting them, you know, you need to read your Bible every day and pray. And There's got to be more than that. There's got to be a restoration of people into community and into family, into what sin has, has ruined for them. And whenever Jesus says that, he, he tells them to go to the, to the priests. As they went, they were cleansed. Not before they went. So you picture the scene, let you see yourself, the 10 guys are standing and Jesus tells them to go to the priest and then they have to decide at that point, are we going to do what we're told or are we going to sit and wait for something to happen? And that's the great challenge of, of faith. Jesus, you know, normally you went to the priest after you got healed. These guys still have leprosy and Jesus says, start going to the priest. Turn and make your journey towards the priest. And this is, this is where faith is called for. And this is where you will find in the Christian life or in mission or in ministry, so much happens as you go. We want to sit all day long in the armchair and pray, God, show me a sign. <laughs> we want to be like Gideon, who I think was a wee bit, faithless when he put the fleece out the second time he'd already heard from God and he wanted to, to just double check instead of getting up and doing what he'd been told. We want to sit until something happens. Whereas in the scriptures and in, in the exodus, in the arrival in the promised land, in the gospels, so much happens as you go. These guys were not healed until they started to go to the priest. They were not healed standing outside the village on that day with Jesus. It was as they went that they were cleansed. It makes me think of Matthew 10, where Jesus sends out the, dis the disciples, the, the 12, on mission. And as he sends them, he gives them the following instructions. He says, as you go, proclaim this message. 
The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. As you go. Not that you're just going to sit and pray about it and it's going to happen. You will go. You will take a step. You will make a move. That, that story that of the four lepers back in the Old Testament, for them, the, the, their, their viewpoint was, why sit, and I'm remembering the King James Version of it, why sit we here until we die? These, these four lepers that are, that, are, that are just sitting there like, we're going to die if we go, we're going to die if we stay, why just sit here? And they get up and they make a move. And as they make a move, God moves. And as these disciples go out on mission, God moves and they see lives transformed. And as these lepers go towards the priests, as they went, they were cleansed. And, and I just would challenge you as I challenge myself big time and just in these weeks and the, the conversations that we're having in leadership and the conversations that Linda and I are having over coffee every evening, that, that challenge to go, to actually take a step. You, you feel God speaking and you feel Jesus placing something on your heart and you want to see something happen and you just hear these three wee words, as you go, <laughs> take a step. And the step is not a risk. People talk about taking a, blind, a step of blind faith. There's no such thing as blind faith. If Jesus has spoken, it's not blind. If you're taking a step in faith in Jesus, it's not a step into the dark. It's a step into the light. As you go in response to what he has placed on your heart, that's when you see the miracle happen. Jesus will act as they go to the priest. And then you see the response to, to what happens. So they've, they've, they've been cleansed. Again, picture it all. They, they've, they've headed off and, and they've walked, you know, 100 yards down the road and they, or, or whatever, and they've realized we're healed. And one of them, in verse 15, when he saw that he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. Luke likes these, these phrases, come back, Praise God or glorify God. He uses it over and over again in, in Acts as well as his gospel, this notion of turning back and of praising God. And it says that he praised God in a loud voice. And we've heard loud voice several times already in this, in this little passage. Back in, in verse 13, they call out in a loud voice for for. for Jesus to have pity on them. And then this one comes back in verse 15. He's praising God in a loud voice. And everybody can do Greek at this point because loud voice in Greek is literally megaphone. <laughs> megaphone. This guy's making a racket. He's not being polite in his praise, in his glorifying God. He is loud. And his praise is, is the appropriate way to respond to the mercy that he's received. And note in, in verse, compare verse 12 to verse 16. In verse 12, they stood at a distance. But in verse 16 now, he threw himself at Jesus' feet. He knows he's been restored. He knows he's been healed. He knows he no longer needs to be isolated from another person. He can go, he's gone from being at a distance from Jesus and keeping his distance to now being able to come and fall at Jesus' feet. And he thanks him at the end, or in verse 16, he thanks him. 
we'll keep talking, yeah? The power, the power of gratitude. No, goodness, we're still going. The power of gratitude. You know, I saw thankfulness exemplified like never at any other time in my life by Tim Webb at a hospital bed. And I can't remember exactly when it was, Tim. Uh, it feels like it was about a, a year, year and a half ago, but it, it might not have been, I'm not sure. And I remember Tim had, had ended up in, in hospital one, one day and he texted me and conveniently Portadown College is very, very close to Craig Avon Hospital and it's, it's easy to shoot around at lunchtime. And, and I had gone around and gone up to see Tim and two things that you said, Tim, that, that absolutely rattled me. And I remember going and telling other people about them. And I, and I wrote it down, but I didn't need to go back and look at it. I can remember it. I remember exactly what you said. And uh, so you're up, up, up in the bed and uh, two things. And, he, he sa- and you said you were really thankful that you were in a ward and in a bed and not outside in an ambulance waiting to get in. And also you had a tube in through your nose. And I, and I remember looking at it thinking, that looks really uncomfortable. It looks really awkward and, and just unpleasant. And I, I remember you, you, you pointed to it and you said, I'm really thankful for this tube because of what it was doing and how it was bringing relief. And I sat there and I marveled and I came home. I remember telling Linda and then telling other people at the prayer meeting, just marveled at you know, the ability to, to give thanks for things that so many would complain about. Unreal. Being thankful is just a simple discipline. It is not hard to find things to be thankful for if that's your posture and if that's your attitude. Tom Wright says that that thanksgiving is not just a way of being a bit less grumpy and a bit more cheerful. It's a habit of the heart which indicates the nature and particular shape of the worldview. Thanksgiving is a habit of the heart that lets people see what your worldview is. It's closely associated with joy, which for Paul is one of the primary signs of the Spirit's work. People in whom the Holy Spirit has worked are joyful people. It does not mean deliriously happy all the time. But they are people who choose to rejoice and who choose to give thanks. And a Christian who is not thankful is an oxymoron. That means a contradiction, an impossibility. A Christian who is not thankful is an impossibility. The Spirit has not worked in a person who is complaining and grumbling all the time and never thankful. And, and the way that, that we do things here on a Sunday morning indicates the importance of that. Teaching and preaching is important, but there's an equal amount of time or maybe more time given over to praise and an opportunity for God's people to express their thankfulness and their gratitude to him. It's not just singing songs because that's what Christians do to get in the mood, right? It is an opportunity to publicly give thanks to God for his goodness. And it is so, so important. And the same in our devotional lives. Make time in your devotional life, not just to read the Bible, not just to pray, but make part of that praise. 
It does not necessarily mean you have to sing. <laughs> and maybe people you live with and the animals don't want you to do that. But if you, if you want to sing, sing. But it might just be declaring out loud or in your heart the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, the character of God, thanking him. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Your prayers should just be peppered with thanks. And the actions of the nine who don't come back let us see how easy it is to take God's good gifts for granted. So easy to just take your breath and take your food and take your job and take your wages and take your family and take your home and take your church community and take so many things for granted and to take forgiveness for granted. Be thankful. Try to adopt a simple aim of giving thanks every time you approach God. Every time, whether it's in your quiet time or just in those moments throughout the day when you're consciously aware of Him. I might be just walking down the corridor in school. I might be in my car. I might be sitting in a classroom with a class and I'm just, while I'm doing my thing, I can simultaneously just thank you, God, for your goodness. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your faithfulness. Just develop that, that that you're just constantly communing with him in thankfulness and praise. But now comes in, in Luke's account a shocking detail that he has deliberately, as a good writer, held back and not told us. He was a Samaritan. <laughs> One of them. Earlier on, I asked, I wonder how did these 10 men know about Jesus? And I've been applying what Eugene Peterson calls the praying imagination. It's good to read your Bible with a praying imagination, where you're picturing, where you're embellishing, where you're developing the scene and you're fleshing it out and you're doing things with it. You're not adding to scripture and leading people astray. You're just trying to, hmm, I wonder what that looked like. What that looked like. Did this happen? And as I have read this this week and pondered it with the praying imagination, I started to think about John 4 and a woman at a well who met Jesus. And She was a Samaritan woman and came out from her village. She was another outcast, another one who who really very few people, apart from some abusive men, would have anything to do with. And she came out to to the well at the hottest part of the day when no one else would be there and had this encounter with Jesus at the well. And then she went back to her village and told everyone about the man that she met at the well. And the praying imagination starts to think, I wonder, was it her? I wonder, did she become so full of love for this man who met her at the well and offered her living water that she went back to her village and other villages and told people about the man at the well? And maybe she was the one in my imagination who who went to the wall of the village and from a distance shouted at these lepers and said, let me tell you about a man who transformed my life. Let me tell you about a man who knew my heart and and gave me living water. Maybe it was her. But you need to fill in the blank here. He was a Samaritan. He, she was a, what do you put in? (laughs) What do you put in as the person who, in your thinking or in my thinking, 
surely couldn't be more spiritually sensitive than nine Jewish men. <laughs> who, who do you put in that? Who, who's the name or who's the type of person that goes into the blank there? He or she was a whatever person that, that, that just causes you to go, mm. but that person is more spiritually sensitive than nine of God's people even though all 10 of them had exactly the same encounter with Jesus. He was a Samaritan. We've got other exemplary Samaritans in Luke's writing. He, he loves to record these, these interactions and these accounts. Of course, you've got the parable of the good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. But remember, that's a parable. Jesus made that up to make a point. In Acts chapter 8, You've got Luke again writing about how the gospel went to Samaria and then how the Holy Spirit fell on the people of Samaria. And I remember back, you might not remember that long ago, but a really early message in the series on on Luke from chapter 5 and I entitled the message, The Outcasts Are In. All the way through Luke's gospel, it's the outcast. It's the people on the margins. It's the, it's the ones who, for, for whatever reason, were just pushed to one side. They were unclean. They were the wrong gender. They had the wrong job. They were from the wrong region. And over and over and over again, they're the ones who are in. <laughs> they're the ones who are getting it. And the ones who should have got it aren't getting it. He tells this guy to go to the priest. Or he tells the, the ten of them, He has told them uh, in verse 14, go and show yourselves to the priests. Now that creates a bit of a dilemma when you're a Samaritan. The problem is, what priest and what temple do you go to? Because the Samaritans, I I can picture this guy again with with Eugene Peterson's praying imagination. I I can picture him. They've walked off down the road a bit, a couple of hundred yards from the village. And they're maybe coming to to a fork in the road or a turn where you have to make this turn to go to Jerusalem. Let's say they're going to the temple of Jerusalem and they're, they're going to see a priest at that temple. And the 10 of them get, get up to this, this junction and I can imagine this one guy, this Samaritan, he suddenly he's plunged into this dilemma. I'm a Samaritan. I don't worship in Jerusalem I, I, I worship at a different place. I worship at, at what's called Mount Gerizim, uh, which is near Shechem. And, and the, the Samaritans believed that God's presence was manifested. Listen to me now. God's presence was manifested in this temple at Gerizim. That's, that's where they thought they would encounter God, at this temple. And the Jews held that God's presence was manifested in the Jerusalem temple. That's where they would encounter God. What temple is, is this guy going to go to? Uh, because the other nine, they're all about to make the turn for Jerusalem. And what priest is he going to go to? Because the Samaritans had their own priests who operated at their own place in Mount Gerizim where they met with God, whereas the Jews had their priests in the temple in Jerusalem. So he's, he's an awful quandary here. He's just, the other nine of them are sort of singing and dancing and hopping around and deciding what they're going to do when they get home and see their, their, their families again. And he's turning this over in his head as he walks along the road. What priest do I go to? What temple do I go to? And I think at that moment he had a revelation. 
again, an outcast having a profound moment of, of understanding that the others didn't have. And I think his revelation again was prompted by maybe him having heard the testimony of the woman at the well. Because whenever she met Jesus in John 4, she said, Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors, she's a Samaritan, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, Gerizim. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So she's having a wee discussion with Jesus about where, where do you worship? Where do you encounter God? Where is the temple where God's presence is manifested? Is it Gerizim? Is it Jerusalem? Who is the priest? Because a priest, what a priest does is a priest brings the people to God and brings God to the people. Sort of stands as like an in-between. You know, and, and she's got this, this same argument with Jesus. And Jesus says to her, and I can imagine her shouting this over the wall at the ten lepers. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain, Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem. You will worship the Father neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. And I can imagine my Samaritan walking down the road and he's, he's just all melted in his head trying to figure out what way do I go? Do I go to Mount Gerizim? Do I go to Jerusalem? And then he starts thinking about what this woman said in her testimony. You will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. So where will I worship? Where is the temple where I will find God's presence? And who is the priest who will bring me to God and who will bring God to me? And suddenly the light goes on. And he says to the others, I'm going back to town. I'm going back to the village. And I can imagine the others warning him and saying, no, 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 no. He said, that Jesus man, he said, we have to go to the priest. And we've been healed and we're on our way to the priest. Can you um, just stay with the program because you might blow it? You need to do what he told you. You need to be obedient and you need to go to the temple and you need to go to the priest. And I can imagine this, my man, my Samaritan saying to them, I am, I am going to the temple and I am going to the priest. And he turns and he runs back to the village and Jesus is still there and he falls at his feet because he has this revelation. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the place where we encounter the presence and the power of God. And Jesus is the priest. Jesus is the one who brings us to God and who brings God to us. And while the others are taking the turn for Jerusalem, and as he stood at the fork in the road in Samaria this way, Gerizim this way, and, and Jerusalem that way, he's like, I'm not going either of those ways. Because that's not where God is. He turns and he runs back and he falls at his feet at the temple that is Jesus and at the great high priest that is Jesus. Love it. And I wonder, do you learn all that from the woman at the well? He is thankful. He doesn't just take his healing and run like, like the others. Luke, earlier in his gospel, has recorded Jesus saying in, verse, or in chapter 11, 34, Jesus says, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, that's an unclean spirit, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return 
to the house I left. And when it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. Do you know to be delivered, to be powerfully touched by God, and to just go about your business without filling the house with praise and thanksgiving and worship, without going back to the temple and the priest and falling at his feet is a dangerous thing to do. I know people who have been blessed by God and they're not giving thanks. They, they have come close and they have come in crisis and they have cried out from their position of leprosy and they've been touched by God and they've just gone about their business. It's a dangerous thing to be delivered and the house to be vacant and not to be filled with praise because that thing that you've been delivered from can come back. Jesus ends with three questions and here we finish. Obvious questions, rhetorical questions. We're not all 10 cleansed. <laughs> Second question, the way it comes in Greek is literally the other nine. Where? <laughs> Where are they? Where's the praise? Where's the gratitude? Where's the recognition of what Jesus has done? Jesus is negative about these guys. He doesn't just ignore them and focus on the, on the one who's... He, he's not impressed that the nine didn't come back. Was no one returned or has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? That's the only time that word is used in the New Testament. That word, the Greek word there for foreigner. And it is the word that would have been on the wall of the temple telling people they could not go any further. That, that, that they were about to enter a court that was just for the Jews and that they were not to go any further. Josephus records this sign that was up on the wall and that word was in it. And Jesus again, I think, is just pressing the point. The outsider knows more than my people know and is hearing and is sensitive to the Spirit in a way that my people are not. And, and the difference between this story of the grateful Samaritan and the parable of the good Samaritan is the parable Jesus made up as a teaching tool to make a certain point. And somebody could have said to him, ah, well, you've just made that up and you've put a Samaritan in there in order to give us a bit of a poke. <clears throat> he didn't make this up. This happened, okay? He didn't make it up that a Samaritan was the one who came back. This is what happened. And then Jesus uses that to really drive home the point that, that this, this guy is more sensitive to what he's doing than nine, of, nine Jews. He said to him, rise and go, your faith has made you well. Ten were healed, one was saved. Ten people can have the same encounter with God come into his presence, see his glorious power manifested, have their lives changed. Ten people can all experience the same thing, but only the one who develops a thankful heart and falls at the feet of Jesus is saved. You see that in the Greek words used. In verse 14, when they are cleansed, it's the Greek word katharizo, from which we might get catheter or catharsis, words to do with healing and cleansing. But in verse 19, when Jesus says, your faith has saved you, made you whole, it's a different word. Ten were cleansed. 
I don't think the nine, as they went their way, necessarily got leprosy again. They were healed and away they went. But only one was saved. Only one was actually made whole. And it was the one who fell at the feet of Jesus and gave him thanks. And that word for thanks, a lovely word that we don't use enough in the church. It's the Greek word eucharisteo. And it is from where we get the word Eucharist, which in some areas of the church is used a lot and some areas of the church is not used at all, but should be because it's a beautiful word. The Eucharist, the communion, the Last Supper. The word Eucharist literally means thanksgiving. Simple as that. The Eucharist is the thanksgiving. And we're going to do it now (laughs) so that we can immediately respond to this message with uh, an opportunity to give thanks as we take the emblems and then as we as we worship. But let's just let's let's pray and let's take these emblems now, and you guys can come in a wee minute. You just rest yourselves and and enjoy the opportunity to respond thankfully to to Jesus.